Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. The truth on the Houndsman XP Podcast Network is fueled by joy. Joy Dog Food has been in business for many decades, since the 1940s. They've never had a recall. They only use 100% American-made products to bring you a dog food formula that is going to keep your hounds on their feet and performing at a high level. Late round bound, the next bear race, the next cat race, whatever you got going, Joy can keep your dog fueled up. I personally feed Joy for this reason. They are not afraid to get in the trenches and get in the fight. They will show up at a local meeting where people are trying to pass tethering laws or uh, breeders' bills or whatever and put their name on that and put their reputation on the line to support us. So find Joy Dog Food on the internet, find that dealer locator, find a dealer near you. Go to joydogfood.com and keep those hounds fueled by joy. If it isn't aged, uh, the moonshine's never aged. They may stick it in a barrel for a month or two. Yeah, I like, I really like grain alcohol. I do too in a margarita. My buddy's makes my buddy makes the best moonshine. Just lives not too far from here, but he's old school. Keeps it back in the weeds. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) he does. I'm not going to name his name, but he does. I used to be able to get um, get it out of the out of eastern eastern Appalachia. I'll just keep the region very broad. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I still can, but. neely's family distillery right across the the river here i mean they're 15 minutes from the house and they make one called uh pop casey's yeah oh man did you listen to that uh huberman lab podcast i told you about the what which one what your what alcohol does to your body on the huberman lab podcast no you never you never sent me the link you're going oh, to i thought i did yeah, I ain't gonna send it now that you're already sipping on your moonshine. Yeah, I, <laughs> it'll ruin you. It'll absolutely ruin your day. I only drink one drink on Sundays now. Uh, I made it through like two weeks of sober October. Never had a single. I didn't know there anything. was a sober October. Well, I've never done it before, but I thought you know this is a good time to just shut it off for thirty days and you know kind of recoup, and then uh, yeah, that lasted till World Hunt. Yeah. And then next thing I know, they had a bottle of Widow Jane sitting there for like 70 bucks and I can't find it at home. So I pick it up and got to crack it open and that was the end of my sober October. See, that's, that's my deal with like high end bourbon and stuff is I like it. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't just have one bottle sitting. I've got to buy two. So I've got one, you know, one sitting back. I do that a lot of times. I'll, but like I had a bottle of Widow Jane sitting here. I'd never opened. Yeah. 
And then I seen another one out there and I thought, well, I'll get that one a drink, leave this one here for later because sometimes I don't like a bottle and I'll just keep it back and do something with it later. Do you, uh, do you ever have, have you ever drank Pendleton? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like Canadian whiskey at all. I like Pendleton. That's yeah, the I one, like, that's the one I do like. I, I like American stuff. Pal. Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, other than Heineken beer, um, it's not American. So, all right. <laughs> Pendleton, Pendleton whiskey is about as American as you can get. It's, it's Canadian whiskey. It's, it is distilled and blended in Oregon, and it's named after the uh, Pendleton Roundup, the Cowboy Roundup. That didn't come Hold from on. Canada. Hold on. I'm, I'm running the Googler. You run the Googler. I'm doing it right now. Yep. It doesn't come from Canada there, bro. Why does it say Canadian whiskey on it? It's the Canadian style it comes whiskey. From, it comes from Oregon. That's no more American than Canada. Is. Well, it's like probably half of that bourbon you drink isn't distilled in Bourbon County, uh, Kentucky. Well, yeah. I only drink Kentucky bourbon. Other than the Widow Jane, it's a New York bourbon, but I yeah. I'm not a big fan of it now that I've already emptied a bottle. That's a th- that's the thing. You know, you, you, you if you're going it's going to be bourbon. It needs to come from Bourbon County with Bourbon County water. It needs to be at least in Kentucky, in the yeah. state of Kentucky. Yeah, that's my that's my theories on it. Yeah, uh, my favorite bourbon is Blue Run. Uh, I've only been able to acquire two bottles in my life, and right now the bottle that I have that is unopened, I drank one. The unopened bottle is worth ten times more than I paid for it, and I paid three hundred dollars for it. And you that that run does not exist anymore. I don't know. I bet you there's only. 50 or 60 bottles of those left. See, that's the difference between, I'm not a collector. Uh, Even, you know, used to go to the Ducks Unlimited Banquets, and the big deal was you win a shotgun and one of the commemorative models, and the action's never been broken. Yeah. Yeah, I I never was that guy. I don't collect much either, but there's something about something that takes that many years to, to make. Yeah that does some and especially there's nothing more purely american in this world than kentucky bourbon i mean that's as america that's more american than apple pie i've got some apple, i've got some apple pie in the truck <laughs> <laughs> it's going to texas with me <laughs> all right let's get what what did i text you i texted i don't you know i said the topics were today barking puppies oh yeah mountain lion sightings and world hunt recap oh okay that's what we were going to talk about we can talk about whatever i could spend another four hours talking about bourbon trust me you want to talk about crazy yog terriers man this sucker is wow. funner than a barrel full of monkeys man he is he's something else he, what does uh is he like crazy gamey like the ones we had that i've been around or is he just Oh, he's pretty. Actually, is he pretty normal though? Yeah, I mean, like he don't just fight himself if there's nothing. No, else no, because that's what ours not, like. Not, no, uh, you know what? Before I got him, I had a friend of mine. Uh, I gotta get Snyder on this podcast sometime. The guy's, he's just a walking comedy show most of the time, but uh, he has an epic story. He thought he was going to get some Yog Terriers, and he's got that epic story that turned. You know, it's just too funny, but. I always heard they were dog aggressive and and all this stuff, and maybe some of them are, but man, he's not. He's just him and Axel the pit bull. They'll they'll wrestle and chase each other around the house, and the next thing you know, and the next thing you know, they're taking a nap together on the porch. Now you got to watch. You got a, just... you got a pit bull. Mm-hmm. What's it What's it like? 
uh, atypical pit bull, I'd say. I, I you know, he's um, super chill. Uh, you see all this stuff coming out on, you know, social media right now since the devastating attack down in Tennessee, wasn't it? Missed it. Yeah. Uh, the what, what happened? Fill me in. Two children killed a f- mm-hmm. three-year-old and a five-month-old. Mom got chewed up trying to keep the two pit bulls off of them. That's a, one of the problems is there's always more than one. Um, I, I was, t- I've talked to my wife a lot about it because we do have one and, um, people are, people are talking about genetics and then the other people will say, no, it's how they were raised. Well, I mean, genetics are everything, you know, yeah. genetics are, make it possible to do what we love to do. Uh, and, but the thing of it is I just treat, I treat Axel. Uh, with the respect he deserves, just like a loaded gun, mm-hmm. um, you know there there are there have to be there should be rules that any dog owner have, but especially a breed like that that need to be followed. You know they're not horses, they're not trampolines, they're not you know something that you can pull their ears. And I I mean I treat him he 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 gets on the bed every night when my wife's in there watching her iPad and crocheting. And, um, when I come in at night, you know, I'm not, I'm not yelling at him and screaming at him and, and running him off the bed. You know, we make a game out of it and he gets off the bed, but it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't manhandle him. I don't, um, uh, you know, I know there's something in there genetically that can be a trigger, just like I know there's a trigger on a shotgun and I don't mess with it. You know, I, I've pushed it to see how far before but then reading his body language and stuff you can see it you know you can start to see that behavior change when it's like uh, i'm not going to be pushed much farther and you know where that threshold is and now you know where you can go and where you need to stay away you know it's just like just like handling firearms you know when when you you know people that um the first time they pick up a, a rifle or a handgun to shoot they're intimidated by it and they don't know how to hold it and they don't know for people that have been hunting as long as we have, you know, it just becomes second nature. It's an extension of our body. And, and that's the way I look at, at, uh, at the pit bull is I think a lot of times you look at our culture, people, um, don't know how to treat that. They don't know how to handle that. And kids are a lot of times do not have the boundaries that they need to be taught to have a dog like that. So you can't just say, yeah, it'd be cool to have one and they'll protect the family. And I've got these little hellions over here that can't sit still in a restaurant and they, you know, they terrorize everything. It's not going to work. And I'm not saying a thing about these people. I have no idea who these people, and that was tragic. It really was. But uh, at the same time, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, you know, that as, issue. As a father, um, I've never trusted any, I don't trust any dog. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been around dogs and had dogs of all breed, most all large breeds. I've never owned a small breed dog other than a beagle in my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't trust a single one of them around a toddler. Exactly. Or a baby. Right. Not a single one. Never, never in a million years would I leave a large breed dog or a medium breed dog around a child because a child doesn't know 
the dog's body language. A child doesn't right. know how a dog's going to react. Exactly. And those dogs are not people. Mm-hmm. They are not wired the same way we are. Now we can come in and we can dress them up and put birthday party hats on them <laughs> right. and stuff like that, but they're not us. Okay. Yeah. So these are still animals and, and creatures that are driven by different things than we are. Uh, they're triggered by different things than we are. Aggression and physical correction is a dog's language as long as there have been wolves on this planet. You bet. When an alpha wolf is in a pack, he dominates that pack through violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nothing in your dog. I don't care if it's a Chihuahua or a Great Dane that can prevent a dog, can, 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 can prevent that many years of DNA. Right. And genetics. There's right. no, there's nothing. So I don't trust any large dog around small children. Exactly. Now all these ones that, that you see the pictures on social media where they're pulling on the dog's ear and the kids climbing all over it. And they're like, Oh, mine's just a sweet baby. And they show pictures on the couch and it, it probably is dog's probably a great dog. And the whole time the dog's sitting there with it, the, you know, his ears are with cocked ears back a little bit. Back, he's yeah. licking his lips, you know, mm-hmm. he's doing things like that. He's, he, not only do the kids not understand body language, the parents don't either. No. Because no. they're like, see, he's the sweetest thing ever. And the whole time he's he's asking nicely right now. He's like licking my lips. I'm looking out. I've got the white around my eyes. Uh, you know, my ears are cocked back a little bit. I'm telling you in my language right now that this is not a comfortable place for me to be. So... But if if the the adult in the if there isn't an adult in the room, yeah, then you're going to have problems. I don't care, like you said, I don't care what breed it is. And it's heartbreaking the pedestal that they put dogs on. And don't get me wrong, I like my dogs. I like all of them. Bogan's sitting right here next to me. I've got really nice coon dogs that that I enjoy uh, competing with and hunting and stuff. But I mean, they're they're not people. And we got to quit treating them as such. I don't think that's ever going to happen. It gets worse year by year. Yeah. You know, that just as well as I do. I mean, that's you put a picture of a starving dog or a starving kid on the internet and see which one gets more comments. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty sad, but anyway, you're pit bull. Yeah. You know, the rules, you know, the dog, uh, you're lucky to be a dog guy. So, and I've been around pits quite a bit. Uh, we use them as catch dogs. Uh, the ones I've been around haven't been pets. They've all been working dogs. Mm-hmm. But the pets I've been around have all been just been dogs. But they need their space. They, and they just need, want a job. They man. need what they need. Yeah. Uh, the funniest, the funny, and I was leery about this because this is the first one we had. I was in Montana working. My wife sends me this picture of this puppy. She's like, look what I just picked up from so and so. <laughs> I'm looking at this picture of this puppy and I was like, what have you done? Do you have any, do you know what kind of dog that is? And she's like, well, they told me what it was. I said, that's a pit bull. And she's like, you think so? And, like, <laughs> and she was playing me to the max. It didn't matter oh, that it was yeah. a pit bull to her. She liked that dog and she was going to get that dog. And so, you know, I, I, we'd never raised one. I called all of my friends that uh, have raised and trained, had hunting pits, you know, that they're for a long time and just, just picked their brain and had a conversation with them yeah. about them and did some research and, and uh, really did up my game on, on like dog behavior and stuff like that. So I could gauge it and read it and stuff like that. So getting back, and I'm to- sure, I'm sure today's pit bulls out of certain stock are probably a little mellower and a little less aggressive, but you're not going to unwire all that. Mm-mm. 
No. You know, you're going to unwire some of it through 10, 12, 15 generations, but you're not going to unwire it all. When it goes bad, it's going to go really bad. Yes. You know, and, and I don't want a Yog Terrier puppy becoming a, or somebody's, somebody, some person becoming a, a, a rag doll for a pit bull, mm-hmm. you know, so just do what you do and, and, and make sure that you don't get there and correct behaviors and, you know, set some ground rules, you know? Yeah. That's it. That's it. Did I ever tell you, you about did I ever tell you about the time that I the parenting class that I went to? This was before our first kid was born. <laughs> you went to a parenting class. Uh-huh. How'd that go? <laughs> it was with our church. My wife's like, I think we should, you know, went, my wife was all fired up because we were having our first baby. And she was like, I think I think this would be good. The associate pastor is putting on a parenting class and all these expecting parents are going to get together and they're going to have, have a class. I did the typical eye roll, like, great, this ought to be, you know, like getting kicked in the nuts for an hour. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so we go, and you've got all these people, and they're, they're talking about, oh, I think when, when we have our baby, I'm going to be like this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to. And I just sat there. I listened to all this stuff for a long time, and Steve looked at me, the leader of the group. He said, Chris, you've been quiet. What do you think? And I said, I think raising kids and raising dogs is not that much different. You set, lay down the rules, you enforce re- the rules, and you reward good behavior and be consistent. And you're there. And these I'm women, always- these women tried to stab me with plastic forks and everything <laughs> else. It was like, oh my gosh, how could you compare a child to a dog? You can tell how long ago it was now, Josh, because now yeah. you wouldn't ever get that comment. Oh, now they're for now they're yeah. fur moms. Yeah. They have parenting classes for people with dogs. <laughs> they're getting ready to expect a new puppy. Yeah, yeah. But that was always but, like a classic deal. My wife still reminds me of the parenting class we went to years ago, where I where I brought up dog behavioral and dog training in our parenting class. The on, the only two times that I compare humans to dogs uh are in parenting because you're right it is similar you know uh you show me someone with a terrible dog and usually their kids are brats you know it's usually about the same yeah and uh i will say that some dogs are just born assholes yeah and people are this that's the only two that's the only two likenesses some dogs are just born that way and some people are just born that way it's not all environment (laughs) and then you got two of them that do a podcast yeah that's right that's right and I got a bunch of asshole dogs too the truth is sponsored by Havoc Hunting Supply when you are looking for high quality gear go to the people that understand the demands you put on your gear Havoc has a full line of top quality hunting gear that meets those demands rugged hunting vest for the big game houndsman to the sleek High-speed low-drag vest for that late-round-bound competition hunter. Havoc has what you need. The Havoc website features a complete line of hunting gear for the serious houndsman. And they feature that iconic Havoc logo. Go to HavocHuntingSupply.com and order your gear today. It's time to turn the hounds loose. It's time to wreak some Havoc. I did want to talk to you about is the Chris Saunders podcast. Yeah. I, I loved that. And I've gotten a lot of feedback. I imagine you have too, about some of the things that Chris said 
And some of the things I think Shorty might have been one of the first ones to text me. He said, Hey, send me that dude's number. He's got the kind of dogs I want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think Chris, first of all, Chris done a fantastic job and I knew he would. Uh, me and Chris have been visiting. We run into each other at the World Hunt. We sit out there in front of the clubhouse all the time and we visit. And uh, I haven't had a chance to go hunting with Chris, just pleasure hunting yet, but I need to. And yeah, he's, he said, he's not, he said some, away. no, he said some real interesting things about. Uh, reproduction as far as the litters, the litters, you know, having sires and dams that come from good litters mm -hmm. and uh, how a dog uh, runs a cold track and how they focus on a cold track and stuff like that. And I've always said, and I think you're kind of in this uh, in agreement with me here, as far as the dog's old factory abilities are normally pretty much even part. Uh, the ability to smell certain things uh, are different or are the pretty much the same, but the, the mindset is the difference. Their willingness to react to the odor, yes. you know, do they have the drive? Do they have the inclination to, to stick with it? You know, but yeah. you know, I don't care whether it's a boxer or a coon hound, you know, when they, they they're going to smell, we couldn't measure the difference in, in their ability to smell things. I'm sure somebody could, could, but. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just what they're inclined to do and how much drive they have to, to pursue that. So, um, yeah, I, dogs knows they're going to, they can both lay on the porch and, and smell the same thing. And the, the hound is going to get up and chase it. And, you know, the, the lap dog, probably not. Yeah. I, I, with Bo, cause Bogan's with me all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's on the road with me. Uh, I let him out a million different places, rest stops, old gravel roads everywhere. And the amount of time that dog takes to decipher things that are coming through his nose astounds me. Mm -hmm. The fact that he won't sit down and run a track and he might, he loves chasing squirrels and stuff, but I know that he will sit there and smell where a dog peed two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he will, especially when it's cold and you want to go back inside and you just <laughs> want the stupid dog to go to the bathroom. It's five degrees outside. He'll sit there and smell on that post. Oh yeah. He'll sit there and smell on that post for 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. And you know, con and some of the other male dogs that I've packed around, they'll, they'll take a quick whiff. They'll pee on it. They'll go on. And Bogan's deciphering. He's reading that book word for word. Yeah. He's not a speed reader. You know, he, he's going through that scent. And I think when he smells a turd from a chihuahua, he can tell what that dog ate two weeks ago, Guarantee it. you know, and he just, it's amazing how these dogs noses work, but I just wanted to touch on that with you because we have the cold nose, hot nose, all that stuff. Cold nose is just a phrase. Hot nose is just a phrase. It's yep. a cold, cold mindset, hot mindset. That's my theory. I, are you in that same boat with me? Yeah. Um, it's so daggone complicated to talk about. And it's just, it's just one of those, it's like, the urban dictionary or the, you know, the backwoods dictionary for coon hunters, you know, cold houndsman, cold nose, hot nose. What does that really mean? We've tried to, man, I've been trying for two and a half years to, to really define that and, and break that down to what, what that actually means. And it's just a difficult thing. You know, um, dog, some dogs are just more inclined to, um, to, to dig in and try to decipher that odor, scent, whatever you want to call it, uh, regardless of how old it is. I think the dog, there's a really good 
um, episode. I watched it. I, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like, but it was called, it's on a series on, it's either on Prime or Netflix called Unexp- or Unexplained, and it mm-hmm. talks about dogs. And that was an amazing, if somebody wants to get some good good information, they talk about how the dog uses its nose and sees the world through its nose in a way that anybody can understand it. But when you get down to the hot, cold, hot and cold nose thing, um, I think too many times those are terms that are just thrown out there and um, without a full under, because none of us really fully understand how a dog uses his nose and why he chooses to do certain things and other times he can't. Yeah, we don't get it. <laughs> I'll be the first to admit we yeah. don't get it. But we're getting, I think we're getting a better grasp on things because it's hard to understand a sense of another species. Like we can't understand what eagles and, and raptors see oh my or God. turkeys, wild turkeys, how they see. Did you, did, I mean, did you listen to Seth's podcast a couple of weeks ago and he talked about how birds see, I mean, it's all in, we only see like, I can't remember what Roy G. Biv, I think is the it's red, orange, blue, violet. I can't remember all of them, but we see like six or seven, six or in the color spectrum dogs see, I, only, I only see three yeah i mean as partial color blindness i can't tell there's between red and green and stuff like that so yeah the way that a turkey sees just birds, just confounds me birds see a couple more a few more colors than we do yeah you know and the receptors and the way the eyeball is shaped a, a raptor's eyeball is you know flatter than a than a mammal's eyeball so bang you know they're they're seeing things different and it's crazy yeah if we can't get if i can't get a grasp on that i can't get a grasp on how a dog smells <laughs> yeah 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 it's it's um and and the only reason you know i geek out about it is and the only reason i have any knowledge about it is because if i didn't study it and i didn't I had tests on it, you know, and I, yeah. if I didn't, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be certified to run a tracking dog. And it really kind of kicked it in and opened my eyes to how our hounds use their nose and how scent travels and how scent's generated and how it interacts with the ground and bacteria in its environment, and how wind affects it and all this other stuff, you know, it's, um, but getting back to the cold nose, hot nose thing, you know, I think that comes to another genetic makeup and that it's, that's its hunt drive, its prey drive, things like that is what causes a dog to react to the scent in different ways than old Fido sitting over here. Yeah. Well, and, and prey drive, I mean, that's kind of a loaded term too, because you look at a dog like, like Bogan, who wants to chase mm-hmm. everything that he can see. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's a squirrel, rabbit. Uh, if Duds is just trotting across the yard, Duds is, or Bogan's going to run over there and tackle him. Uh, anything that's running away from that dog, yeah. he instinctively wants to go bite. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's human, animal, whatever. If it's yeah. running from him, he wants to bite it. And that that's prey drive. Yeah. Uh, a bird dog that really quarters well, that's always looking, that's always hustling, and always banging the brush looking for that next piece of game to fill his nostrils that's prey drive but you look at like say duds was in the yard the other day i put that video on facebook and there's a possum eating pears in my yard and duds won't even touch it yeah won't go he's standing by it when i get there no inkling 
to chase that possum. Of course, she's, I've never broke him off possums. You know, I raised the dog. He's 12 years old. I've never had to. Huh. But if that possum or if, if that was a coon, you know, who knows what he, he I know what he's going to do. He's mm-hmm. going to run it and tree it. He can't help it. Right. And so prey drive's selective too. Bogan's not going to trail anything. He's not going to put his nose on the ground and, and try to run it. Uh, Duds is only going to chase coon and deer. That's the only two animals he's ever chased in his life. He's been around hogs, porcupines, you name it. Uh, so prey drive. So if you, if you take, well, he, he, he will chase a ball, right? Bogan. Oh yeah. Yeah. He'll yeah, fetch a ball all like day, crazy. all day, long. all day, every day. Yeah. So if you throw it in the weeds, what does he do? He looks for it. Does he, I he, mean, he does, he does use his nose like to try insane, to find it. Won't give up. No, no, he's going to give up. Is you it? know, if he can't see it, you know, after a while, he's going to, he's going to look for 30, 40 seconds. And if it's hard to find, he's going to go find something else he can see. Um, one of the things that Ariel Peldunas talked about on Heath's podcast was, you know, how to develop that olfactory sense in dogs, you know, from scatter feeding in the grass to, mm-hmm. you know, doing different stuff and how that enhances a dog and it trains them even more than they're already naturally wired to do. It wakes those senses up and helps them develop that. And, uh, I, I watched it in this yog. I noticed when I got him, he was not nose driven. He was only five months old when I got him, I guess, but he was very sight driven. No, no nose work at all. And I started scatter feeding, you know, just in the grass and I've seen him develop more of a nose and more of a, like he hunts mice, like a wild man, mm-hmm. you know, um, he'll hunt, he'll, he'll walk around the foundation. We got a lot of rock native rock. Well, I mean, old rock walls, rock foundations on the barns. Chipmunks love to get between those rocks, man. Yeah. And he just runs it through there. And he'll just uh, he'll be running along there, and all of a sudden he'll just do this big scent hook, you know, this just big hook, and just boom, got his nose buried in a hole trying to dig a chipmunk out. So I've watched him develop that. He's in here hunting a mouse right now, <laughs> um, but I've seen him do it on coons too. You know, I've seen him walk in there when I first hunted him. He had no clue, and now when I get to a tree, it's got to be lower hanging tree, you know, lower canopy type stuff but he'll be standing on his back legs in there you know winding because he knows there's a coon up there and i think a lot of that is the specific prey because you take uh jason squirrel dog for instance who trees probably every squirrel by sight i've never seen the dog tree a slick he's always got a squirrel Mm. he timbers well but he may be he hunts like a hound he may be three quarters of a mile in between trees yeah and woods full of squirrels. So I know he's only treeing them by sight. I've seen him tree them by sight. But you take that same dog at night, uh, and you drive him around these cornfields here. He'll tree the fire out of coons by scent. Yeah. He'll open on he'll open on the ground like a hound. Uh, he chops, of course, but I mean he'll open on the ground like a hound and and tree and stay treed. And I know he can't see it. But do you think do you think the squirrel dog might be running through? You know, say he. Say he hunts like a hound, so you cut him loose. He gets in there 100 yards, hits this oak flat. Boom, all of a mm-hmm. sudden, there's squirrel scent all around him. Stops and starts listening because those squirrels, 
when they're climbing that hickory bark, when I could hear, I could hear him do it. Yeah. You know, and, and now he's zoning in on that, and then he's using that eyesight to pick up just that, boom, that little smidgen of movement and locking in on it, and and that's why he's not slick in. But I bet you he's using more nose. It, it amazes me. When I had squirrel dogs, I would sit in tree stands when I was deer hunting and watch squirrels move around, and I thought, how these dogs ever tree one? You know, it's not like, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. I think a lot of it is the fact that certain dogs like certain game more, mm-hmm. and he likes to tree coons more than he tree squirrels. A lot of that has to do, and this is what my original point, is uh, that's where environment plays a big deal. Because this dog was running loose, and I'm at work. Uh, the family's gone during the day. He's five months old, and he starts treeing squirrels in the yard. Mm-hmm. He trees a squirrel at 9 o'clock. What's he going to do for eight hours, ten hours before I get home? Right. Every time this dog's been coon hunted, uh, every coon he's treed, he's got shot out to him. Uh, he stays treed better on a, on a, on a coon. He won't stay treed on a squirrel for very long. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of that was just environment. The dog, the dog's smart. The dog figured out, you know, if I run these, I get to chew on something. Uh, they shoot every one of them out to me. You know, I, I, I can trail these up and tree them. They smell I assume a coon puts out more scent than a squirrel does and lays a better track. So a dog that wants to track, uh, he's one of the rare cur dogs that I think wants to run something that lays a track. I think uh, I've I've run plenty of good squirrel dogs by coon hunting them. You know, I had a yeah, I had a female I called Sassy. She's a Brindlin white female, and I actually she actually had some uh, PKC money one on her. She was a good coon dog, and um, she was a good strike dog. Believe it or not, that's a crazy thing. That's that's what really yeah. That sluice is a good strike dog on coons. Yeah, but uh, I started coon hunting her, and it got to the point where she loved to coon hunt. She would mm-hmm. go out and she would tree squirrels at an acceptable level, but if I wanted to take her to Jamestown to OMCBA or you know South Georgia for the Winter Classic, I had to, I had to keep her off of coons and just let her get all of her hunting desires and treeing that it had to be on squirrel, yeah. you know, focused on that. This is your reward. And I've noticed that with, um, I've noticed that with hunting coon hounds and then you bear hunt them jazz. Now that she's treated a few bear and seen a few bear, she's just kind of hummed it about, you know, she'll go out and she'll tree a coon, but, when it comes bear hunting time, it's like this, I like this. Yeah. And well, you look at probate and that's a dog that won, I don't know. She was a platinum champion or and better. And, uh, she got down in a country where there's bears and she wouldn't quit tree and bear. Yeah. You know, and this was a dog that I, the times I hunted with her, I'd have just been happy. She treat anything. I'd rather have it that way than, than armadillos. Yeah. (laughs) It seems like you take a dog from up here in our country and you move south into that armadillo country and they just lose their freaking mind there's something about lines of dogs too because uh i've never had to break a dog off a possum ever not once in my life have i ever that goes against what john wick says well i've never had a dog that was (laughs) con his street two uh he's seven now he hasn't treed one since he was eight months old uh, I've never, I corrected him off, or he's treed three. I'm sorry, he's treed three. He treed one when he was six and a half, seven months old. I didn't do nothing to him, just let him off of it and recut him. And then uh, 
one night me and Garen Gibson was hunting and I turned him loose. He trees a possum. I get onto him a little bit and send him on. He goes and trees another possum. And I pulled him off that. He was, I think, eight and a half or nine months old. And he's never treed one since. Hmm. Uh, he never messed with armadillos, never messed with hogs in Texas. Uh, Duds has never treed a possum that I'm aware of. And then, you know, Dollar never treed any, uh, which I got him at a later date. But Delta, Blink, and you know, all the dogs that have run through here, I've never once had a dog that would tree a lot of possums yeah. that I kept. I had one female out of Joe Black that would tree a possum, and uh, but she was young. I never broke her. I ended up just selling her as a started pup. But yeah, it's just for some reason the the line that I got or the trader dogs they've never had any possum trouble. Yeah, I just and that carries on to when we go down south to Texas, they don't mess with armadillos mm-hmm. either. Now the trader stuff with hogs, whew, they love hogs. <laughs> I mean, love them. And and Duds loved running deer, and he still will probably at 12 years old. I'm guessing if a deer come in and started eating them same pears, I haven't seen any deer in the yard eating pears. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I think, uh, I think some dogs are just wired to run certain game and some dogs aren't. Yeah. Chad Reynolds talked about, uh, I think it was Chad in the very first podcast he was on, uh, before he became one of the hosts, he was talking about how, what was he doing? He was trying to hunt deer dogs with coyote dogs in Louisiana or vice mm-hmm. versa. I think it was vice versa. I think he was trying to, no, I think he was trying to hunt coyote bred dogs on deer. Yeah. And, um, no, it was deer dogs on coyotes because he shot a deer and it was in the back of his truck. He said he's, they just went ballistic, you know, and he got mediocre performance on them on coyotes. I just, I don't know if that's ingrained in their DNA or if that's an exposure thing. Because the first thing that we expose a dog to, I think, is going to be their primary game of choice. I I like I agree with that. I you really know, you do. think you think of these pups, uh, like right now. We're going to get into puppies here in a little bit, but I've got seven, uh, six and a half week old pups out here in the puppy pen. Actually, I think they're running loose in the yard right now. But uh, their first game exposure unless a possum climbs in the kennel with them or something like that is probably going to be raccoons and i don't care if like last night if their mother comes home with that scent on them or you know that's going to be the first game i expose them to when i'm in the woods in the the dark Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that that imprint on a young dog is important and i think that's one thing that trainers overlook is uh, we imprint on these dogs as their owner you know, when they're babies, you know, the minute I pick those dogs up and I start feeding them and I start messing with them, that imprints those, those puppies. Uh, the same can be said for any kind of game in the chosen game. I think we, we spend so much time, you know, trying to figure out what makes us successful or, or whatever. And so why not spend your time? I'll pick up road kills when I've got a litter of puppies. And, you know, just I'll, sometimes I just whack the tail off of it and bring it home. And mm-hmm. that's the play time, you know, put it on a flirt pole, whip it around in front of them, get them fired up about it, you know, let them chew on it and, and wallow it around. But I don't just let them have it so they, yeah. you know, they get bored with it. I take it away from them. But 
that's their playtime. That's their fun. Uh, that's exciting. That's something new. And, you know, I'll do that. I'll do that once a week, maybe twice a week with them when they're real small. And uh, I'm the same way. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a guy that goes out and sets a box trap. And, and if they get them started on possums and switch them over to coon, you know, I want them to be on coon from the first time that they tree to the day they die if, if it's going to be a coon dog. Well, I want my dogs to be specialists. Mm-hmm. That's that's what uh, I don't do multi-purpose dogs other than Jace's squirrel dog, and that was the thing where he wanted a dog, wanted a dog, wanted a dog he could keep forever, and we'd start these pups, and someone would offer me a few thousand dollars for them, and I'd sell them, and they were Jace's pup. Yeah, no doubt, I've done. <laughs> you that. know, my my grandpa did the same thing to me, but uh, he wanted something, and I thought, well, that'll be fun to have a dog that I don't care what he does, right. You know, if the dog runs a rabbit or a deer or a trees a possum or a coon, it doesn't matter. That's I'm not why I'm competing with, the, with the dog. Yeah, I'm not competing with the dog. You know, but to be honest, that dog bores me. You know that he's he's almost good at something, but he's not really good at anything. <laughs> that sounds like all my dogs. <laughs> well, you know, and so so I've always been a partial to specialists, and yeah. my specialists are something that I want to compete with and, and, or that can compete when, when they move to a different home or a different handler. And so I don't care if it was when I had retrievers or pointing dogs or whatever, you know, I wanted something that was really good at one thing. See, I'm just the opposite. I think, I think the dogs are talented. I think they're skilled. I think they can do a lot of different things and they can do it really good. Um, now I'm not crazy enough to think that I'm going to take Cajun and, you know, go to Salem, Illinois, and win the PKC World Hunt. It's not going to happen. I don't have the desire, but but um, I I'm just the opposite. I like a dog that when I go hunting, I don't have to leave a dog at home. You know, I can mm-hmm. I can take what I got and I can go have a good time and not be totally embarrassing. Maybe a little frustrated, but but not totally embarrassed. And so to me. Um, and there was a time, Josh, and I'm not saying I outgrew it or whatever. I mean, I just, my interest changed. I, I have all the respect in the world for the, you know, the Joe Mannings and, and some of the guys that you've, you've interviewed for this podcast that, that can take a dog and, and get it to that level of excellence. You know, that that's no easy task. I don't care what you're doing with it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, man, there's just something about, having dogs that that are versatile and and can hunt multitude of game that i'm i'm really enjoying right now i really like it well there's nothing wrong with that and i want everybody to be able to take their dog whenever they go you know when i went bear hunting in wisconsin a couple years ago i didn't take a dog uh I still had a blast don't get me wrong it was fun but it's different without your own dog dog yeah it's not it's not as fun yeah but also i get you know i see these dogs and these guys had some great dogs great dudes uh, i had a blast we treat a lot of bear but i'm over here thinking you know i can get a dog to do something better than that <laughs> i wanted to get but i want to get a bear dog you know right. a dog that's really good at treeing bears either 
you know, or a pack of them. And so that's not something I'm able to do living here in North Missouri and have the best of the best. And so that's the thing. It's just a mindset thing. To me too. You know, when, I- when I had retrievers, I wanted to go win the SRS. When I had bird dogs, I wanted to win a shoot to retrieve national championship. You know, when I had beagles, I'd like to go win a world hunt of some kind. And, you know, that's just, it's just a mindset thing. And uh, don't get me wrong. I, I love waterfowl hunting too, but I don't like going without my own dog. But I know, I know when I get that dog that the next thing I'm doing once I get that dog trained is looking for local events. The thing that thing that's crazy for me is like I went through the with the retrievers. I haven't had a retriever now for probably 15 years. But um, man, I got a whole room full of decoys, and I've still got my parkas and my all that stuff. The only thing I don't really have is is the neoprene chest waders. Yeah, they're trash. But yeah, I always I always go hunting somewhere where my hip waders will work that I kuna with. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> uh, but one thing one thing that I've no come to realize, you know, there is a difference between the dogs that I have out here and the dogs. Like I'm leaving for Texas, and I'm going to hunt with some real hog dogs this week. Yeah, and those aren't my dogs. <laughs> you know, they it's hard to keep. Um, I like to have, when I show up, I like to have dogs that can get the job done and I want, I want my dogs. I lo- I'm just as prideful about my dogs as anybody else. And I want them to look good, but man, trying to do that when you've got to drive six or seven hours to get to bear country, um, is tough. And it's, I'm going to say it's the dang near impossible. When you look at these guys that have got those specialists what is our job? It's like the old three in the movie Three Hundred, you know. Spartans. What is your yeah. job? You know, and uh, that. Yeah, you can't you can't be a potter and a soldier. No, you know it, it's, and so that's where I'm handcuffed, is because I love going down hog hunting in Texas. I love going bear hunting in Wisconsin. I want to go mountain lion hunting. I haven't got a chance to do it yet. I've got plenty of opportunity. I need to just take the time to do it, but. It's not, I have to look at it a different way. I have to look at it as research. I have to look at it as this is a vacation. I can't judge the dogs because I'm not as familiar. You know, I I like to think I know dogs, but I'm also not as familiar with the terrain, with the, the type of game that we're hunting and all that stuff. And so I'm not a professional at it. Right. But when I turn a dog loose at night to prepare for a pro classic or something like that, I feel like I am a professional. Yeah. You know, I I know what's going on. I know what the dog needs to do and how to operate and things like that. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, because uh, I've been with people that don't do anything but bear hunt, and they think they're hauling bear dogs. And I look at them, and I'm thinking, the way a dog hunts, the dog behaviors, the characteristics that, that mm-hmm. we need to see out of coon dogs or you need to see out of bear dogs or whatever it is, you know, those those natural abilities uh a dog man can see those you know they they can see it doesn't matter what it is so uh, i know but it's hard to go to a different place and look at a guy and even though i know it's true be like well that dog's junk <laughs> yeah i mean but you just, just can't yeah but it, but i can see it man you know? i do and, i do too and i feel i feel like i don't have the experience to say it and of course i wouldn't say it anyway well, you do, because though. You do. I know. I do. I you do. know. It's, it's just like, it's just like, if if you went to the 
nap water trials and your or you know say it was a sport sport protection work yeah deal and some guy turned this fat malinois loose that trotted across the field and gummed the sleeve and you would know you know that that's not what we're looking for Exactly. And and it's the same way, different. And it doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes, you know, you get the guys that just like to be there, and um, they like to have a dog in the hunt, and and, but you know that if their dog is doing something, you're probably not going to drop yours in with them. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But it, at the same time, that's it. Still makes it hard to travel. Yeah. Speaking of mountain lions, pal. Yeah. We've had some sightings. Have you ha- been having I'm... them in Missouri? <laughs> you know how it is. We have them everywhere that there's not mountain lions. Are they black? <laughs> yeah, a lot of times, yeah. yes. Remember but... a couple years ago, I it was funny when I when I was working. Um, there were some guys that were posting these pictures of this mountain lion. Mm-hmm. And um, Holton is a little town up here north of me, north, and and it's got some wooded area, but it's mainly agricultural. And uh, these guys made these black and white flyers and posted them all over Ripley County. It said, it said mountain lion sighted in Holton, and they had the picture of this mountain lion. And uh, look, it was a trail cam picture. And yeah. uh, some guy re- came running up to my truck. He's like, man, have you seen this picture? This li- this thing was sighted <laughs> in Holton. <laughs> And I looked at the picture and I said, well, that sucker, there must be mule deer in Holton too, because he's, he's dragging a, <laughs> he's dragging a mule deer right now. Either that or he's packing his lunch. He, he's packed it a long way. He so, is. He's carried, you, he carried that thing about 1200 miles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, you, you hear all this stuff and you see all this stuff and, and my parents are still convinced that there's, there's the old Panthers are still living in Brown County, Indiana. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, they're, it's not just a one-off thing. It's like, they're really there. Well, let's, let's put this rumor to bed, Chris, cause there's one hit in Illinois. Yep. And we had one in the city limits, a sighting, a legit, it, it was a mountain lion on a camera, uh, in city limits of Indianola, Iowa, just South of Des Moines, mm-hmm. eight miles. And so there have been some le- actual legitimate sightings. But at, during your days as a warden, and I just spoke with, uh, I was down, on, I was on the road working with Joy, and there's a gentleman that, that runs, a, he's a wildlife biologist that runs a big WMA in Louisiana around Shreveport. And uh, we were visiting with him. He's got some squirrel dogs. He's a Joy dealer and customer. And so we got to ride around, look at the WMA with stuff, and I was picking his brain as a biologist. And he gets, I don't know how many sightings a year as well. Mm-hmm. So in your professional opinion, uh, from your warden days and, and from your days as a houndsman, how many of the mountain lion sightings, and this is no slight against Brent Reeves, <laughs> but how many mountain lion sightings that you covered or do you think on average were legitimate out of a hundred? Zero. <laughs> And I've got, so, I've got, I've got tons of stories. I'm not, we, we actually verified, um, one over in Southwest Indiana, um, uh, mm-hmm. probably, 
I don't know, six or seven years ago. They're not sure where it came from. I'm not sure what the status is on that anymore. Um, but we used to get, we used to get these sightings all the time. I remember a guy one time, he's like, calls me and they always call in. They want you to call them back. They just want somebody to talk to really. Right. And, uh, it's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm seeing a mountain lion. Really? Where are you seeing it? <laughs> I see it every morning on my way to work every morning. I was like, really? See so it? on day three, they didn't think to maybe like bring a camera. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, man, that's crazy. I said, I know people that, that are professional outfitters and guides and different things in the courses of 30 years. They've seen, you know, two or three from the truck on the road, you know, just driving mm -hmm. down the road and see them. I said, they're soup. That is amazing that you saw it. And, um, this guy, I mean, he was just, he was dead set. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you down there and we'll just, we'll look around. And I met him at, at this intersection and we parked the truck and I, he, I said, where are you seeing that mountain lion? He says up on that hill. And we stood there for a little bit and it was a yellow lab and up behind somebody's house. He saw oh, it yeah. every day. They people would go to work and they'd turn their lab outside and he was in an underground fence and he laid up under the trees and he was a yellow lab. <laughs> and and I made one of my neighbors over here uh really upset. And it was un I mean, it was it's always unintentional, right? Uh, but uh Not he always. He <laughs> that's true. Uh he called me, he's like, Chris, I got some huge tracks in my around my cornfield up here. He goes, They're they're mountain lion tracks. I know they are. I said, Really? Mountain lion tracks? Yeah. I said, How big are they? And he told me, I said, They got great big claws, you know, they get big claws at the end of every toe and you know, I kind of built it up to him. Oh yeah. Like, they, yeah, man, they got big it's got big claws. I said, That's a dog. <laughs> he was just like quiet on the other end. I mean, offended that I didn't come up and look at his mountain lion tracks that were made by the neighbor's German shepherd, you know? Yeah. And there are legitimate mountain lion sightings in sure. Missouri, especially. I'm just going to speak for my state. I uh, think we we're probably see had more and more of them too. Yeah, we will. We will. They're moving in. My friends killed one. Uh, they treat it with hounds just 30 miles north of my house. I think it was in 2002. Now, I know that was verified because they brought it to our feed store that we had at the time, and I got a picture of it. Mm -hmm. uh, they seen it cross the road, uh, turned a bunch of English dogs loose on it, Gary Kleiber, Jesse, Jason Kleiber, all them guys, coon hunters, and they turned a bunch of hounds on it and treat it, shot it with a 30 out 6 there, there, was, there still is, to this date, no protection on them in Iowa. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they were perfectly legal in doing it. Uh, they, they got, he's 127 pound Tom, two year old Tom. And, uh, he'd probably come from the black Hills and yep. made a big trip down the river and, you know, he ended up in Iowa and a bunch of hillbillies seen him and treat him. And that was the end of him. I think they made a rug out of him. Right. And so that's bona fide, verified, you know, and there's been several others, but for the, I'm going to just guess offhand 25 verified mountain lion sightings since 1985 there have been 150,000 or more. Reports. Oh yeah. Reported Easy. sightings. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's just, and the, the more we get into, you know, study of wildlife and wildlife biology and different things like that and make discoveries about traditional wildlife corridors and where you're at there, you've got the Missouri river, you got the Mississippi river, you got 
uh, you know, all those drainages that are traditional legacy type travel mm-hmm. routes for these animals. So when the populations get to a certain level that it's not comfortable and we're going to get more of that stuff. And that, that really speaks to, and it speaks against the animal rights campaign that these big cats are rare and endangered. If they were rare and endangered, they wouldn't be looking for new habitat. They wouldn't be looking for new territory. They're trying to expand their range is what's happening here Mm -hmm. because of the restricted seasons and, and, you know, we've got, we've got an abundance of, I'm not saying we're, we're, uh, you're never going to convince a lion hunter that we got too many lions. You're never going to convince a yeah. coon hunter that we got too many coons. Um, so, but we've got a healthy population that's looking to expand its range. There was actually a wolf uh, shot in, I think it was 2007 or eight, just about 20 miles south of my house. Mm-hmm. We have one male shot timber. in northern Indiana. Yeah, male timber wolf. Uh, he was in the hundred and he was huge, but all timber wolves are huge. Yeah. A 145 pound dog, 140 pound dog or something like that. And he, uh, guy shot him in his wolf pen, uh, just North of Trenton, Missouri, I think in 2008. And I don't know whether he was collared or if they'd done it through DNA, but he came from a pack in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, these things travel. Well, most of those, a line that's collared has DNA on file. Yeah. So if like the the line that was hit in Illinois, if that comes from a, a they they'll they'll take a DNA sample and try to match it to existing DNA samples. They'll track yeah. they'll track it back because one. Of those, I think that's I think that's what they did with this wolf as well. Yeah. One of those one of those cats up in the Black Hills has been caught and collared and swabbed and you know somewhere down the line. So maybe it's great grandmother on its father's side you know but it it, there's a they'll have a track back to where it came from i think it's amazing i do too but also you know on the truth we ask the tough questions pal and (laughs) i want you to swear on the bible (laughs) or whatever (laughs) uh i want a legit number on would during your time as a warden how many black panthers did you drop from helicopters because the insurance agents paid you from Progressive? Well, to be, all right, swearing on the Bible. <laughs> we were so busy. We were so busy dropping rattlesnakes from there helicopters to control the turkey population that 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 was on the schedule, but we never got it worked in. Just because, you know, flight time and, you know, just manpower. Helicopters ain't cheap. Yeah, I know. And you can only go up for a certain amount of time. One shift, you might get two flights. So when you're dropping hundreds of rattlesnakes from helicopters, it's hard to work in the Black Panther. Do you guys have any rattlesnakes? Uh, We do. Yeah, we've got some West Central Indiana. or uh, I didn't know that. South Central Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. Ours are very localized. We don't have any in so our county ours. except for one yep. really small spot. And I've never seen or heard of one north of Highway 136. Yeah. That's another but, thing. For years, you know, where I live here right now, I've uh, been here for 30 years. And uh, of course, we always got the snake calls and different things. And everybody's got a copperhead or a water moccasin or something mm-hmm. like that. 
and it was always a uh, northern ringneck snake or a band of water snake that they had but again they'd, they'd almost want to fight you about it yeah i used to have to go to the hospital and i do snake id <laughs> when somebody <laughs> came in with a snake bite yeah and uh, even though there was no fang marks <laughs> no <none. laughs> we yeah. have because as a houndsman that hunts all over the all over the united states you know i've i've been from texas to minnesota just this year and everywhere in between you know especially out east nebraska kansas you name it uh i have a bad habit of not being scared of any snakes or pay, being snake aware even mm-hmm. when i'm in a large snake area when i'm in louisiana in july i'm just tromping <laughs> around through the water like it's no big deal you know and i do the same thing in texas east texas and stuff and everyone's looking at logs and stuff while they're walking over them and i'm bumbling around through the woods like an idiot and I'm, we're just we don't have it uh, well i'm the same way i got to virginia during the the early bear season this year well i hunted there all through the training season too and then we get to early bear season and and show up in camp and people wearing snake chap <clears throat> snake chaps and snake boots and it's like crap i knew i forgot something yeah. you know i've got a set of snake boots during the truck going going to texas with me uh, next week so i am becoming a little more snake aware i would be better off like i was down to louisiana state youth championship and joy had sponsored that so i was down there i was just going to help them judge and i brought the dog food that we gave and all that stuff and i never even thought about it it yeah. was hot it was 85 90 degrees it was earlier this spring early summer and it was pretty warm and uh the game warden came and spoke and he spoke for like 30 minutes about how to watch for snakes. <laughs> I was like 25 minutes into this thing. I'm like, Oh crap. <laughs> I'm going to die over here tonight judging these kids, yeah. you know? And so I'm, I'm getting better. Uh, Joe Manning, uh, me and Joe and Cole were hunting a few weeks ago and I got a video. I actually put it on my Snapchat that, uh, Joe had went across a bunch of water to get a dog and Joe don't like snakes. He's not a big fan. He, he looked at the water. Of course, I never thought anything of it at first. And I'm following Joe and Cole to this dog. Goose was treed, you know, just past this water. And uh, Joe goes, oh, no. I said, what? He goes, Mr. No Shoulders should be in here. <laughs> I I said, well, he goes, oh, yeah, snakes, snakes, snakes. Yeah. So I never even thought about it. Joe crossed the water to get the dog. It was pretty deep. It went over his boots. So I stayed on the other side being the friend that I am. <laughs> and uh, I looked down not eight feet from me and and there's a big water moccasin just sitting there slithering through the through the canary grass and the reeds and everything i told joe i was like don't come back over here (laughs) (laughs) but i just i i don't think of it i don't it's never a thought that even crosses my mind when i'm in snake country and i need to be more aware yeah yeah i'll tell you the craziest place you get up to montana and i don't know you think snow and cold and you know yeah. you don't think about snakes and um we were hunting somewhere and michael ritchie told me he's like he's like man that's a snaky sum again in there you know talking about the snakes yeah. i guess council council idaho is just full of them well um, i know when we were in chinook montana doing that job i actually killed several snakes just right in our driveway of our lodge yeah several several prairie rattlers and it would be 80 one day, 85 one day, and then it would be 30 the next. Uh, no. And then them days that they were 85, there were rattlesnakes everywhere. They just moving. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. How'd we get on this? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't know. We're we're at an hour. I guess we've talked Holy about crap. everything. We, 
Yeah. <laughs> I just now looked at a recording thing. Yeah. But I don't really have nothing crazy. I want to do just kind of a recap of the Saunders episode and, you know, the world hunt we just got finished there. Well, let, me get, let me get back to, I'll tell you what my thing on Saunders was. Chris Saunders is one of those guys. He doesn't live too far away from me. I've seen him at several events. Um, I've drawn him a few times. I wouldn't say several, but a few times. Chris Saunders is one of those guys that um, he's competitive. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, he is a competitive person, but the way he plays it, the way, you know, it's just like, Hey, you know, things aren't going my way tonight and I'm getting beat here. And, and he doesn't, it doesn't seem to affect him. You know, no, it's tomorrow night's another night. I'll, I'll be here next week. I'll be here the week after that. I'm going to be here. I'm going to have my day, but today's not it. Congratulations. You know, just absolutely straight across the board. Uh, probably one of the best people I've ever drawn in the cast. Well, there's several houndsmen and that there's several houndsmen that I enjoy my time with, mm-hmm. and whether it be in a cast or whether it be at a clubhouse or whether it be out to dinner, uh, the people that I find interesting, uh, are, there's not many. I mean, there, I'm just being honest. There's not a lot of people I find interesting. And Chris Saunders was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed my time with him, you know, on the podcast, but I also enjoy my time with him no matter what we're doing. What's he do uh, for you a know, living? Yeah. I don't even know. Isn't he? We all, we, all we do whenever me and Chris are together is talk dogs. I'm not even going to say, but I think it would surprise you. No. I know that uh, just the way he got into hound hunting was interesting. You know, coming from the Bronx, mm-hmm. uh, self, self-taught. Uh, his his family are not huge outdoorsmen like a lot of us. Uh, I've seen some similarities there. My dad never hunted anything. Uh, but I had a grandfather that did. And, you know, so I was only, you know, I skipped a generation, which is pretty common. But the way Chris came into it was interesting. Uh, Chris's views on dogs and his knowledge on dogs has always interested me. And he's, he's a good conversationalist. Yes. He's just an interesting, he's an interesting guy. And I think that came across on the podcast too. Mm -hmm. Well, if you couldn't tell from the podcast and, um, you know, Chris Saunders is a black man Mm -hmm. and, it's not it so here's the truth question is he interesting because is because that side of his story i mean it's not when you go south you'll see find a lot more houndsmen who are black uh but up in the upper midwest it's kind of an anomaly and i I, did you get into that with him on the podcast i didn't i didn't get into it with him on the podcast and i should have because you're right. I mean, coon hunting is, especially on the competition side, is one of the most inclusive. Hound hunting in general is one of the most inclusive sports there is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot to get into it. You need a dog and a two-cell flashlight and the wherewithal. And, right. and Chris, Chris has proved that. Uh, when you get down south into Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, I mean, you think of some of the great Texas, some of the great... Yeah. African-American coon hunters, you think of, you know, Guy Manning and, and Sluggo yep. and and Mark Gilmore and all good dudes and fantastic to hunt with and to be around. Uh, it's not rare, but I don't know of any other uh, black men that 
four women that came from where Chris is at and became a houndsman, especially not one that competes at the highest level. It definitely makes it, it adds a layer of mystique and interest, Mm -hmm. interest to the story. Yeah, for sure. Because we want, we want, uh, inner city, urban, Northern, Southern, East, West, uh, people like that in our community. We want a diverse community. And so the fact that he's here is just a testament to the fact that, you know, it, it's open to everybody. Well, we may, we may want that, but the way the human mind works, we're also very tribalistic and, and we put, um, we put descriptors by, you know, who is a coon hunter? You know, we, we, we try to put people, pigeonhole people in different things. And that what you're talking about is like the million dollar question for the future of wildlife funding, for the future of hunting, for the future of, of, of our culture as hunters is how do we get more people? And it doesn't, they don't have to be, uh, you know, a black, a black guy or a black kid from inner city. It could be anybody from the inner city. How do we get them to understand or become interested in hunting? And that's the interesting part to me when I was listening to the podcast was how he just picked up on this thing through some uncles mm-hmm. and, and then once he got, he went to college, then it's, you know, he started hunting and he's like, yeah, this is for me. You know, my kid, my son grew up doing this stuff and I can't, I have to almost hold a gun on him to get him to go coon yeah. hunting, you know? And it's, it's, you take somebody from the inner city that grows up totally unfamiliar with it. It just goes back to my philosophy that, um, the reason people mow their lawn and they, they trim their hedges and they do is because deep down inside human beings have the instinct and the desire to work the land and care for the land and do things like that. Mm-hmm. And so you take this guy that's on his one tenth of an acre lot in a subdivision. That's why he he's out there weeding the flower beds and trimming yeah. the hedges and all this stuff. Yeah. And, uh, there's something wired into all of us and and chris saunders saw that and he he recognized it and he went for it i think that's cool man i th- i think it's awesome when you talk about tribalism and that tribalism works uh it, it can be a positive too because here i am you know at a coon hunt with a man with differing views and a different background and a different culture and a different race and a different everything yeah and we have that in common that, you know, he, he's got coonhounds. He must be all right. Yeah. You know? And so I, I'm not a big fan of tribalism in the most, for the most part, but, uh, you know, you look at that and you look at something that can bring folks together and, you know, our sport, I think is probably the most inclusive there is. I'll tell you, man, I've, we've talked about this multiple times, you know, you're, your football career, some some last longer than others. I don't think Brady's ever going to retire. Um, <laughs> but football careers have a have a shelf life, or they have a, they mm-hmm. have a, an expiration date. You know the thing about running backs. They say you know running backs have so many great runs in them, and then when it's over, it's over. Um, but the thing about hunting, 
And when we're talking about competing, if you've got a competitive spirit, competition coon hunting, man, you go to, you go to the world hunt. It's not the CrossFit CrossFit Olympics. You know, and you look at, we had senior cast this year and had a lot of them. I called them out every night for Roger Dale and there were, absolutely, there were six to eight senior casts and guys that you never would even would have dreamed would be in senior casts because you've been competing with them and they're still competing at the highest level. You think a senior cast, I mean, Jeff Rickliffs and Steve Yant. What was the age? And I don't know, but Jack Bingham was in the senior cast, I believe. I mean, there were, there were senior casts that that you'll see at a pro classic every week i ran to ran into rickliff's uh last tuesday mm-hmm. yeah i was and he was down my way he was down here playing yeah. golf at rising Sun. well rickless and strickland invaded our podcast whenever i was sitting down yeah, with, with saunders yeah. Yeah. yeah they poked their head in the door and ran yeah. their fat mouths like they do <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i love those guys i do but yeah they it's a it's a great sport and it's like golf but better yeah, you know, this golf a, you can play a long time It's a time life too. sport, you know. That's what mm-hmm. that's why we used to talk about it and introduce people to it. You know, when you're going to a school corporation and and trying to convince them to put a hunter education class in in the schools, you know, you tell yeah. them it's like, man, this is a life sport. Yeah, you're cross. I want one thing I do want to talk about, and we're talking about in, being inclusive, and we're talking about senior casts and how everything was great and. There, one thing I did want to mention is that there were not nearly enough judges for the youth world championship and the preteens, they had non-hunting judges, but the teens did not. And so here we are and everybody wants to grow the sport and everybody wants to do this. And me and Jed have talked about this numerous times about helping the youth and stuff like that. And we couldn't even get enough judges to show up at the PKC youth world. And it's getting to the point where I'm afraid we're going to have to start paying them. I mean, we go out there and volunteer. I judge casts. Everybody come out and judge casts that could or that that did. I mean, I greatly appreciate it. But there were a lot of guys that could have been out there that didn't show up. And hmm. we've got questions in the teen class and panels. And some of these teens are great. And I, all the kids are great, you know. But they shouldn't have to be out there by themselves at uh, 14 to 18 years old without a non-hunting judge. Why? And because there are certain circumstances and I, I I'm not against it, uh, at small events. I'm not, uh, when there's a youth cast at the bear Creek classic and they're all, you know, 13 and above, go ahead. Parents are probably with them. Parents are walking along. Uh, but this is a world championship. Mm-hmm. I don't even think there should be hunting judges in the early rounds of the world championship for the grownups. Hmm. Uh, I'm not a fan of it, but the fact that we didn't have enough and that some kids at the age of 14, uh, could have a negative experience at their first, maybe, maybe it's their first world hunt. That puts it over the edge for me. Well, for a guy like me, you know, of course, you know, I wasn't there, um, judging a cast. The kids have a better chance of, drawing a raw deal if i'm judging that cast then if one of them no we need we need we need qualified judges too yeah you know they they, and it's the same way do you do do you do i mean would you be opposed to uh you know doing some training time for judges at the world hunt that's the problem because you know these kids have got 
they're going and competing for the world championship. They don't need me that hadn't entered the cast in four years to show up and say, yeah, I'll judge for you. Yeah. You know, they need, I'll tell you what they need. They need some of these 21, 22 year old kids that grew up in that PKC youth program to say, you know what? I need to go back and I need to do my time. So, I mean, yeah. how much recruitment is done? How much? Not enough. Uh, there's not enough incentive. There's not enough pushback when they don't come. Uh, there's just not enough. And the, the, what, the main thing that I'm getting at here is we got to do better as a community uh, to get things right uh, for all of this, not only just the, the kids, but the adults as well. There were a lot of complaints and I, I'm not going to complain about Roger Dale. Uh, Roger Dale done shooed me out for running him down on this podcast too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I've said before, RD, if you're listening, I love RD. Uh, Roger has always been good to me. Uh, I try to help any chance I get. Uh, but eventually, uh, the wheels are going to fall off if we're not careful. Well, and I just think that we need to do better. Okay, so here's here's my – there needs to be more of a structured youth program within these registries than just the world hunt and just a mm -hmm. youth cast. Mm -hmm. um, it needs to be a culture like 4-H where you have a youth national committee – that that helps make some decisions about how youth programs are going to be run. Um, it needs to be deeply ingrained where the kids, we are mentoring kids to be the next generation instead of just hauling them to Salem, putting an adult with them and saying, go on out and compete. When you, when you set up those committees that you committee made up by youth and mentored by adults, and make it a year-long thing and have youth events throughout the year and you have the panels are youth, the judges are youth, the hunt director is the youth, the youth are taking the entries. You're getting an investment at that point. You're getting a buy-in. And it's going to mean more to them when they're 21 or 22 or 30, knowing that that's where they came from, and I think they'll come back to it. I think they'll, I think they'll be back and they'll be like, man, I grew up in that. It's like 4-H, man. My wife, we used to tease her all the time. She and I did 4-H too. I didn't. I think I did do the 10 year. I did do 10 years. I got a 10 year pen as long as you could. All our kids were 10 year members. My wife was a 10 year member, but my wife was also a 4-H leader, and she helped the kids. And when I was out of 4-H, I was out of 4-H, man. I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, but we used to tease her saying that she was working on her 30 year 4-H pen, you know, because <laughs> she was just. And you see that at 4-H. You see. When you get to the fair, when you get to our fair, you see the same parents that were there. Now they got their grandkids there, and they're still investing their time, and and that sort of stuff. And that's I, I think that's our next natural move to build these youth programs is to put the ownership back into the kid on the kids' plates and say, man, what do you guys want? Let's sit down on the committee. This is how you run a committee. This is how you make rules for it. This is how you select locations. You know, all this sort of stuff. I think it's getting there as it, as parents are getting better uh, about uh, not influence a cast. Uh, the kids are getting better about knowing the rules. Mm -hmm. these, some of these kids are fantastic handlers uh, already at 15, 16, yeah. 17 years old. I've drawn uh, some. some yeah, some of these little kids uh, got in at the big world hunt. Mm -hmm. You know, Braxton Wills and 
Uh, I think the Langley kid got in and, and a few others that, that got in with the grownups. You know, there's, there's, there, but there's not enough of those. And we need to take uh, more control as far as building a foundation like you're talking about. Uh, it's just like when you're starting a pup, everything starts with a foundation. And uh, to do that correctly, I think we need to kind of step back, look at it, reevaluate, and, and do better. You look at now, youth nationals had 55 entries a night. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't 100 like we had at Salem. Mm-hmm. But all the judges were there. All the guides were there. Everything was lined up the way it was supposed to be. The calling of the cast, the getting the kids to the woods, everything was super efficient. Uh, but it took, uh, and don't get me wrong, Freiberger does a great job, and Amy Thomas does a great job helping out. Uh, Steve Yant and, and myself and Finley, we all worked really hard to, to make all that stuff happen. But it takes that at every major event. And sometimes we just don't, we don't start. I mean, we started working on youth national six months before it, before it came about. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the youth world championship was, uh, we're going to just run it like we did every other year and hope for the best. And the big, the big show's coming on Monday. Don't you think it would be cool? I mean, when you were, when you were 15 or 16 years old, wouldn't you have liked to have been running for office for the chairman of the youth national committee you know and- yeah you know and i think it would be cool but also we got to look around that and don't get me wrong i mean i love i love kids but when you're 15 or 16 years old you're still a dipshit well yeah but you, you <laughs> exactly you gotta have I mean, you gotta have mentors we, in place exactly you know for you know and for we has, gotta make sure it's done the right way they've got they've got president secretary vice president all that stuff within the clubs they run the meetings the adult leader is sitting over here saying hey you can't do that yes you can do this hey you want to do this have you thought about this you know yeah and and you've got to have good mentors in place man i think that's going to be the key we're 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 turning we're hitting some crossroads with this competition coon hunting we're on the cusp of a lot of different things we're We're right on the cusp of we're talking oh man just the money purses and Mm -hmm. and different things it's we've got it we're at a crossroads and we have to choose which way we're going here and if we can build that youth program to be a real deal where the kids have investment in it we've got our future secured yeah for a long and it, time. and it is getting better uh i just don't think it's getting as good as it could be you know i think we could do better mm-hmm. i really do think that it, there's still room for improvement even though there is improvement yeah yeah. So, well, anyway, I'll tell you that, what I'd, I'd be willing to do, Josh. I would be willing to be involved in helping develop yeah. a concept or a model and, um, you know, either proposing it to, to whatever registry wants to take it up and, and go with it. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't see why that would be a bad idea. If we could get a commitment from some people that were willing to come together, but with the end goal, this is key for me. The end goal is to train some of these teenage kids to mm-hmm. be that national committee for youth where, you know, you put their names on a ballot and they get elected out of their state to be their state representative. And, you know, the whole nine yards, I th- that's the only way it's going to work is if, if you make them have the investment in it and not just, you know, 
loading it, throwing them in a truck and handing them a dog lead and saying, go out and call the dog. Well, that sounds pretty freaking American, pal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Even, and I drink Pendleton whiskey made in America. There you go. Oregon. I don't know if that's America yet or not. Maybe Eastern Oregon. It used Oregon. to be. <laughs> yeah, it used to be. All right. I ain't got nothing else. You got anything else, nope. Chris? Good one, right. man. Yeah, that was a good one. That yep. was a lot of fun. Yep. Well, you want to sign it off? You want me to? This is your show. All right. Welcome to, or welcome to. I, I didn't do. I didn't do the pre. I didn't do the pre. And that's because I punched the button before. I know you hit record me. while we was talking about stuff we probably should have been talking about. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to the truth only on the Houndsman XP Podcast Network.